Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Chris Dorides. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? We are, we're missing uh, Marissa. Um, uh, just something came up. So uh, unfortunately, we'll miss her humor, uh, but uh, but good to have you. You're, you're not sure about your humor. You're kind yeah, of sort of, yeah. yeah, but I we'll make you. do. We'll make yeah. do. Uh, how, how was your week? Uh, good. good. Yeah. Abbreviated week here, but uh, it's good. Abbreviated? Why was it abbreviated? Oh, well, yeah. Martin Luther King Day on Monday. Oh, is that this week? Boy, <laughs> that seems like a long time ago to me. Yeah. You know, well, I, I traveled good. to New York and DC this week. Oh, so, okay. yeah. Uh, you didn't stop by, you know? Actually, I did. I stopped by my home in, in Pennsylvania just to make sure everything was nailed down tight. And I did notice all my plants are, you know, distressed. So got to do something about that. But uh, but I, I did notice that uh, I was down in the financial district at HQ, Muti's HQ, you know, Seven World Trade. Yep. And I will have to say, very, very quiet. Uh, this was a Tuesday uh, and uh, not a lot of activity down there. So, and then I went to go to, I go to DC and I'd have to say it was pretty quiet, uh, at least where I was, you know, around a lot of the government, you know, buildings. So, I don't know. It just doesn't feel so, like people are coming back. So uh, marking down your forecast, I take it. <laughs> little... uh, no, no, I took that into account. That was already baked, you know, into the <laughs> forecast. So no, I, that's what I totally expected. Uh, although I did hear the mayor of DC is now, uh, I think they're going to require federal government employees to come back. Uh, yeah, if not full time, pretty close. Yeah, you know, because he wants those office buildings filled. Uh, right. So, yeah. Yeah, it's either or. Either uh, go back or. Give us the uh, give space us the space, or... yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a lot of space, but uh, but anyway, we've got a guest, Jason Furman. Jason, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, th- thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, everyone knows you, but uh, just to introduce you, Jason is a professor at Harvard University. But you got a long career, Jason. You may you probably don't remember this, but I think the first time we met was you were working on the. Camp, uh, John Kerry campaign for president, I believe. Well, I remember then. I think you were doing some analysis. Was it of our health plan and its economic impact? Yeah, I think some, that's some of what our it different was. plans. Yep. Yeah, and you were. I, I remember it's the first time I met you, and I think it was the first time I met Gene Sperling too, because you guys were working closely on that campaign. Yep. Yeah, and uh, and you've gone on and done many things in many administrations. Do you, you want to just give us a, a little bit of your your personal history, just to uh, I think people would find that fascinating. Yeah. So first of all, it's great to be uh, great to be on here. And you know, I was always really I loved math and physics, but I also loved the real world and the political debates and the stuff that was happening um, around me. So for me, economics was a really good way to combine those two. You could think in a logical, you know, rigorous numerical way. Um, but you're thinking at something maybe even more interesting than quarks and leptons, but the incredibly <laughs> right. complex thing that is the billions of people interacting um, to make the global economy and the biggest questions of, you know, poverty, growth, um, everything else. Thought I was going to be a pure academic. I went straight uh, from college to a PhD program. But then I went just for a year, I thought, originally to work in Washington at the Council of Economic Advisors under Mm. President Clinton. And I discovered I really liked not just the theory, but the practice and the being engaged in things. In some ways, it was almost more challenging because 
Economists can often figure out the right answer, but you know, often the world doesn't want to do the right answer. So then you need to figure out the second best or the third best or how to repackage it or how to persuade people that it's the right answer and discovered I really liked all of that space. So I ended up spending a couple of years in Washington, going back, finishing my PhD. I won't go through the whole bio. Um, ended up in the Obama administration for eight years. And when that left, came back to Harvard. And I'm just having a great time here at the university, teaching, learning, writing, and talking to you, Mark. Well, it's good It's good to have you. And you, you're certainly understating all the things you've, uh, in your, you've done in your wonderful career. It, you uh, ultimately, in the Obama administration, became a chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Is that right? Yeah. Um, And that's where I had worked in the 90s under President Clinton. And I went back to head it. And it's just such an amazing, wonderful place because it's a group of economists. They're really thinking about economics, but they're not doing it completely detached from reality. They're sitting basically right in the White House complex and input into every decision. And it was such an honor and privilege to lead that group. And Sort of take advantage of the fact that every time I was with a group of political people, I knew more economics than any of them. Um, and then I'd go back to our amazing economic team and try to figure out how to sort of make their work relevant and fit in to, to what was needed um, by, yeah, I, by the political people. Was, was CC uh, part of the council? CC was a there? member of CEA at the beginning of the Obama administration. So I was that's at the right. National Economic Council, um, which is a little bit more political and strategic. Um, oh, that's right. You were at, at NEC the, before. Yeah, you she CEA. was at the. So I was at NEC. She was at CEA, yep. and um, then she was there. I think probably about two years, and then has uh, made her, made a big return as yeah. chair of the council under President Biden. Chair now. Do you do you miss that being in the White House? Do you miss that? You know. I mean, certainly I look at the issue of the debt limit, and I don't miss it in the slightest. Um, <laughs> we'll come back know, there, to that. You know, I'm not like, oh, yeah, I'd really love to be solving this completely artificial, you know, man-made problem um, that uh, that has no intellectual content. But no, um, there are days I miss it a little bit, but I had, first of all, I had a great beginning, middle and end experience there. Mm. We came in the door with the financial crisis. We came out that we left with the economy in much better shape, not perfect shape. And I wish it had grown faster and all of that, but much, much better shape um, than we came in, and I don't think I could ever reproduce that experience. And also, I continue to be engaged in public policy. I'm not in government, but I speak to people mm-hmm. in government. I write things that hopefully they read. I go on podcasts like this. So I have enough sort of day-to-day in the flow of things. In fact, I probably have more day-to-day um, in the flow of things than I'd like to have. Well, thanks again for, for coming on. Uh, and we've got, a, I, I think of you as someone who has a very large intellectual palette that you, you know, you have, a, uh, are able to speak to provide a lot of insight and be very thoughtful on lots of different subjects. So I'm, I'm going to take advantage of that and, and try to talk about a lot of different issues that, you know, uh, are bugging, uh, me bugging our listeners and, uh, and I'm sure policymakers as well. And, uh, no particular order of importance here, but you know, kind of, most immediately top of mind, you brought it up, is the debt limit. Oh, and I should say, uh, we also play this game, the statistics game. I mentioned that to you. So at some point here in the next hour or so, we'll come back to that game. I'll explain it and we'll, we'll play it. But uh, first up, let's talk about the debt limit. And you, you know, you kind of told us what you thought of the debt limit, but what do you really think about the debt limit? I mean, uh, and uh, I guess what it concerns me a bit here 
because I've, I've uh, followed a number of debt limit battles now over the years, now, I guess, over the decades. And this one feels different to me somehow in that it just feels like there's a non-zero probability that lawmakers, Congress, and administration can't get it together in time and there is a breach of the debt limit. So it's it's not it's not zero probability, which is pretty scary. But what what is your perspective on on the limit and the prospects that you know they may actually breach it? Yeah. So as as most of the listeners know, um, we've already hit the debt limit, but the government is taking extraordinary measures. They say that will last um, until June. A lot of uncertainty. I think people think maybe there'd be a month or two more than that. But at some point, those extraordinary measures run out and either the debt limit gets raised or the government defaults. Um, And when I say defaults, it could default on the debt or it could default on all sorts of other obligations and payments it makes. But whatever it is, it's a default and a default would be um, a terrible thing. You know, uh, you know, arguments in favor of this is eventually going to get solved. This sort of, you know, number one, a lot of Republicans realize this is not in their interest to cause some sort of crisis, and it's worked out badly for them in the past. Number two, there are 218 votes in the House to raise the debt limit, mm. and there are 50 votes in the Senate to raise the debt limit. That is already there. The big obstacle, though is those 218 votes in the House are basically 212 Democrats and a handful of Republicans. Mm. And they don't get to vote on the debt limit unless Speaker McCarthy says they can vote on the debt limit. And can he be in a position where he can bring something to the floor? It's mostly Democrats carrying it. Maybe he gets half of his caucus if he's lucky and have his speakership survive. I'm not sure he can. So I'm not entirely sure how they're going to get their act together, the House Republicans, to allow this to move forward. So that was a long version of I'm much more scared than I have been in the past. I think they'll probably uh, get this done. But if my doctor told me I was probably going to live and only a 10 or 15% <laughs> chance of dying this year, um, I you know I wouldn't be so thrilled. Yeah, great point. Great point. Hey, hey Chris, do you feel the same way about the prospects for a debt limit breach? Yeah, so you know, I think looking back, I feel like we always feel this way to some extent in early in the early days, right? Back in 2011, too, it, it kept kind of scary that we were also going to cross the line. But uh, uh, yeah, it definitely looks as though the the risks are are elevated at this point. Yeah. Hey, so uh, the, you know, two things make me particularly ner- well, a few things make me particularly nervous. One is just obviously the, the kind of the chaotic nature of uh, the House process of selecting Kevin McCarthy as speaker. That was pretty chaotic. And as we have learned subsequently, he was able to become speaker because he agreed to ba- basically make a battle out of the debt limit with the, a number of the Republicans he needed to vote for him. So mm-hmm. that that's one thing that makes me really nervous. Second thing is uh, that you know, uh, we've been down this road a number of times, and markets are markets. When I say markets, investors, stock investors, bond investors, it feels like they think they know this movie and they know the ending, and that uh, they're just not going to react or respond, thinking that lawmakers are going to sign on the dotted line in time. And by so doing, markets don't send any signals to lawmakers that hey, you guys, you got to 
pass a piece of legislation to solve this problem before it becomes a problem and, and lawmakers take the wrong message, you know, from all this. And then the third thing is just listening to lawmakers, you know, over the years, it just feels like there's more and more lawmakers, mostly on the Republican side that say, you know, this isn't a big deal. You know, there's ways around it. We can navigate through it. You know, uh, you don't listen to those guys like, you know, Zandy and Furman and Dorini saying it's going to be a disaster if we breach the debt limit. Uh, we can prioritize the debt. Um, so just because of these things, it just feels like we have a much greater uh, chance of of like going over the cliff here. Does that make sense? I'm, I mean, um, is there a way around this? I mean, is, you know, what do you think of prioritization? You know, maybe you can explain what that means and you know what you think of that as a as a way around this uh, 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 passing a piece of legislation. Yeah, um, and I and Mark, I really agree with that last point. One thing we had going for us in 2011 is Senator McConnell, Speaker Boehner. They didn't have a doubt in their mind that this needed to be done. They knew there was no alternative. They knew it needed to be raised. Uh, my guess is Speaker McCarthy knows that too. But an awful lot of his people don't. And there's much more talk now than there was at this stage in 2011 of surely there's some way around this. And um, the, the leading candidate that the Republicans tend to put forward is prioritization. Um, that's the idea that you would decide what payments to make. And you could pay bondholders, you could pay interest, but you know maybe you could even pay social security benefits, but you just wouldn't pay schools and hospitals and veterans or something like that. Um, there's technical questions as to whether the government computer system can even handle and implement privatization. The prioritization has never been done before. Um, they might not actually be able to do it, um, but even if they did do it, um, there's both a direct macro effect of a lot of money being sort of not going into the economy. Then there is just chaos in our health system, our education system for our veterans. Um, and markets could very well treat it as a default and um, melt down. Um, then there's the preferred um, solutions that some on the Democratic side, not that many, more on Twitter than in the U.S. Congress, think you can mint a platinum coin. And you yeah. Just you know, just create a coin. You say it's worth a trillion dollars. You bring it to the Fed. You ask the Fed to give you a trillion dollars. Um, that would just be an unprecedented politicization of the Fed. It would insert them right into the middle of a contentious political debate. The legality is very um, uncertain. I'm not sure markets would be much more happy with that um, than they would be with prioritization. So that platinum coin and its other relations um, you know, which, as I said, I think there's a constituency on Twitter um, and not really outside of it. Um, that's not an option either. Yeah, it seems on prioritization, the thing I just doesn't make sense to you make a great point about the fact that it's going to create uh, an economic problem pretty quickly because the government has a deficit. If, if they can't finance the deficit, that means there's going to be a cut in spending and the, there's going to be immediate impacts on the economy because things aren't going to happen. Things aren't going to get done. And that, that'll add up pretty quickly. Uh, uh, and then on the prioritization, I, I, the thing I can't get my mind around is even if you paid the bondholders, the bondholders are going to think, how long is that going to last? Right. I'm, I'm a, I'm a Chinese bondholder. I'm a Japanese bondholder. I'm a British bondholder for, for goodness sake. Are you going to pay me before you pay the military, the social security recipient, even the electric bill. I mean, really? And it's, they're going to, I just don't see them sticking around for very long at all, you know, given the prospects that they, 
that uh, the the you know the political pressure that uh, that that they won't get paid. I just don't see it. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let me let me throw it though another. There's a few other ideas out there around getting around the debt limit, at least for a period of time. You mentioned there's the prioritization, and you mentioned the the uh, the platinum coin. By the way, the other problem I see with the platinum coin is doesn't that muck with the kind of the DNA of our political system, the checks and balances? I mean, some that means the next president can come along and emit a five trillion dollar coin and do whatever he or she wants to do, and not need Congress to do it. I mean. That doesn't make yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's disastrous. No one. Yeah. Clearly, Congress never intended to give the White House the authority to make trillion dollar coins and do what it wanted with it. Yeah. So. Exactly. How about this? The uh, the 14th Amendment. So in in the uh, uh, 14th Amendment to the Constitution, there's a, a section, I believe it's section four, where if you read the language, it feels like the, the president could call upon that to say that uh, I'm going to tell the Treasury to continue to issue debt and pay our bills. And, um, you know, because not doing so would be unconstitutional. It, it would, you know, violate the sanctity of, of, of uh, U.S. federal debt. Does that sound like a viable op- uh, option? Right. Look, I mean, the problem is the law is contradictory. Congress passed laws that said spend this money and collect these taxes. And then it passed another law that said don't borrow above this. And those two laws collide um, against each other and which law is binding is um, an open question. I, you know, if you had to do something uh, crazy, I would do the 14th Amendment way before I would mint a coin, write a trillion dollars on it and march over to the Fed. Um, But it still just has just tons and tons of uncertainty about is it legal? Um, Is it what Congress intended? What will the Supreme Court say? What will bondholders do if the Supreme Court schedules um, a hearing on it? And so it's just, you know, a set of unnecessary damage that we would incur by taking that path as well. So I, I really think the cleanest, really the only option here is to raise the debt limit. That was the view of pretty much every treasury secretary from at least the 1980s when this first became an issue um, through today. Yeah. Hey, Chris, are there any other ideas out there that you've heard uh, around the, that might get us around the debt limit, for, at least for a period of time? Anything else you've heard? Uh, there's all the there's talk of the Fed and other Fed interventions that uh, could take place, but that again, I think that would be disastrous, and, and not only in the short term, but you have to think about the long term consequences here, right? If we do any of these things, the bond investor is going to put that into their calculus going forward, and that's you know even even if it's only a few basis points more on our debt in the future, that's that all adds up, right? So quickly. Uh, and I think that's the irony here, right? Yeah. Is the goal of the stated goal yeah. of the people using this exactly. as a weapon is that they want to bring the debt down. You know, five basis points more on our debt is a lot of new government spending. Yeah. 50 basis points on our debt would be a new $100 billion a year government program just to sort of satiate the desire of people for this stunt. So it, it really could end up counterproductive economically um, as well as, as politically. Yeah, real, real dark irony. The same folks that say they want to, you know, I'll, I'm, they're willing to breach the debt limit to address our fiscal problems okay. by breaching the debt limit will wreck our fiscal situation. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever, you know, whatsoever. I, I wanted to throw out one other idea, and I'm probably going to botch the explanation, but I this is kind of interesting. Our, one of our financial economists, uh, you know, threw this across the transom, uh, and that is have the Treasury issue premium bonds. 
So, you know, right now they issue bonds at par, uh, issue it at a premium. So let's take a seven-year treasury, you know, I think some, uh, you got 35 billion coming up here that's due and they would issue a, a new uh, set of seven-year treasuries to raise 35 billion at par. Uh, the, the par interest rate is, I don't know what it is, it's 3%, let's say. Let's say sell the bond now at 5% or 6% or 7%. So you could actually raise 38, 39, 40 billion and lower the the debt that's outstanding by three or four billion dollars. Uh, have you have you heard that? That yeah, I, that's sort of a new idea that's out there. I hadn't heard that back in 2011 when I was working yeah. on the debt limit myself. Um, you know, there's some question about how the statute defines the amount of debt and whether it would sort of see through the financial shenanigans that that basically is. Again, um, there'd be some different tax treatment that you would get um, if you issued a bond in that manner. Um, and just, you know, we have really smoothly functioning treasury auctions. They work really well. I, I don't know why we'd, we'd want to change them. To muck, muck all that up. I mean, that, that's the other thing. All these ideas, they're, they're, ultimately, they don't work. They're not going to work. Yeah. And they kind of, there's so many, I'm sure, unintended consequences of all of them that, you know, we can't even contemplate until you're actually, you know, you've committed this, uh, you know, gracious error. So. Okay, very yeah. good. Any, just any... think of all the lawsuits, right? For any oh, of these oh, ideas, yeah. right? Yeah. Immediately. <laughs> yeah, it'll be complete chaos. But here's the other thing that makes me really uncomfortable is there's no good time for this, but the timing of this couldn't be worse, right? I mean, people expect there's a widespread expectation of recession this year. And if you ask people when the recession can occur, it's about the time that we're going to be having, you know, coming down to brass tacks here on the debt limit. I mean, it's just really un very unfortunate, the whole thing. Um, definitely is yeah well let's move on uh, i did want to uh, uh, uh continue to talk about policy a little bit here and talk about the biden administration's economic policies uh year to date so they've you know been in office now for uh, two years uh and it, it feels like when it was all said and done it was a pretty productive two years uh that a lot of economic policy got through uh, the legislative process, beginning with the American Rescue Plan back uh, in uh, March of 21. Then they got the bipartisan infrastructure legislation through uh, Congress. There was the uh, CHIPS Act uh, that, that's uh, to try to incent uh, more uh, uh, chip production here in the United States, given what we learned during the uh, pandemic and our exposure to uh, Taiwanese chip producers. And of course, it goes to the tensions with China. And then finally, the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, was largely about climate change and climate risk. Can I ask broadly, uh, you know, taking all these things together, you know, what do you think uh, uh, about the the legislative effort here? Uh, what it, what does it mean for uh, the economy near and long term? Yeah, so they got more done than I expected, um, and more of what they got done was bipartisan than I expected. I think that is you know, much more good than bad, but I think there's a mixture of, um, you know, of the two. Um, if I had to say the things that I'm, you know, most excited about on the legislative side, I think the investments in infrastructure and climate change are really, really good. I think the CHIPS investment, something there is needed. In some sense, it's too soon to tell how good it is because it's not self-executing. It depends on what they do with the money and how effectively they use it. I think they have a good team 
I have some some high hopes for it, but you know the the jury will be out until we see how the money um, gets used. You know, on the other side of the ledger, um, I think, and Mark, you and I may differ on this. Um, I think the American Rescue Plan was much larger than it needed to be, given what we knew about the economy at the time, um, given where it was, and certainly in retrospect, uh, much much larger than um, it needed to be. I think that's contributed to the inflation we've had and may have made it harder to come back and get more money for families because they did well on what was originally called the American Jobs Plan, which was all about um, infrastructure and climate. Um, They didn't do well on what was originally called the American Families Plan. So things like the child tax credit um, ended up bizarrely uh, less popular after the American Rescue Plan um, rather than more. And then if you look outside the fiscal area, a renewed emphasis on competition, and you see it in all sorts of things, most recently banning non-competes in labor markets, making hearing aids available over the counter, taking a more aggressive posture. I think by and large, that's been a really good thing. Um, But then on the non-fiscal negative side of the ledger, um, I think there's been way too much of a continuation and even expansion of trade wars, of buy American and other things that are just going to make it more expensive to meet the goals um, that they have, I don't think are going to do very much for jobs and are already leading to retaliation um, and foreign policy problems. So, you know, all in, uh, it's a it's a good record. I, you know, I don't think President Obama is perfect. I don't think anyone's perfect. Um, but there's, you know, there's some good, bad and and ugly, but more good. <laughs> right. Am I wrong, but of if you take those four pieces of legislation, the, obviously the first one, the American Rescue Plan, that was not paid for. That was all deficit finance. And back to your, we'll come back to that in a second in the context of what you said about inflation. Uh, the other three pieces of legislation, I, 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 my, mem- my memory's getting a little blurred, but they were mostly paid for, weren't they? Or largely? No, infrastructure no? was much less paid, was mostly not paid for. And some of the pay fors were pretty phony. Um, I think chips. I don't even think they pretended to pay for chips. I might be wrong. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which was for climate, that was completely paid for, and I think, frankly, is going to reduce the deficit uh, more than more than it, more than it does. Yeah, actually, I think in that case, I mean, if you look at the ten-year budget horizon, it, it's paid for. But if you look at it a longer run, assuming the tax increases that were implemented as part of the pay-fors remain in place, you know, under that assumption, which it's a reasonable assumption. It uh, actually reduces the deficit. Deficit. Yeah, the exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that's a growing amount of deficit reduction. And some yep. people, like um, Larry Summers and Natasha Saran, have argued that the tax enforcement is going to bring in a lot more money. That the scorekeepers were too conservative, and if they're right, um, then it's even more deficit reduction than CBO thought. Right. Let's go back to the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, because that's obviously been very controversial uh, in in all kinds of political circles. And um, the the one thing I found very surprising uh, was that, you know, the ARP put a lot of cash into people's pockets, but, and it, it resulted in a significant increase in saving. A lot of that ended up in, it still is in people's checking and deposit accounts, but the way people have spent that money has been very judicious and it's, it's actually been, uh, interestingly pretty well calibrated so you know with the inflation and reduction in purchasing power we've seen households draw down those savings 
in the cash sitting in their deposit accounts to kind of supplement their purchase power to maintain their spending, their the overall uh, spending that they're doing. And it's not been, uh, you know, the spending hasn't been uh, with abandon. It's not like the people out there spending with abandon. And it's just kind of sort of enough to keep the economy, you know, out of recession and moving forward. Were, were you surprised? Have you been surprised by that? The, the way people have kind of managed their, the cash they received on the ARP. And it's not just the ARP. They received a lot of cash on their CARES and the other pieces right. of legislation that were passed during the, the during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't, I think we didn't have any idea about what to expect about how people would spend the money. I think I have a less um, anodyne view of it than you do, Mark. Mm. Um, you know, if you take the American Rescue Plan plus the earlier legislation, the CARES Act, um, and then there was legislation in December of 2020, the three of those together were 25% of GDP in fiscal support for the economy. And that was legislated within a 12-month period of time. And a lot of that money spent out within an 18-month period of time. So 25% of GDP. Then the question is, what multiplier do you use? You know, you often have multipliers, I think, of like 0. 0.7 to you know 1.3. I, right. I don't know what. So, you know, something like that. Um, the multiplier on this was clearly much lower because of that judiciousness. But let's say the multiplier in the first year was 0. 0.2. That's 5% of GDP. We might have needed that in the first year. But that also meant people had a lot more money. So the multiplier in the second year. 0.2, I don't think that's a crazy high multiplier. That's 5% of GDP. And the problem is at some point, people are spending money that um, above and beyond what we could produce. Moreover, a lot of that money got spent on goods, not services. You, We always knew that we could not get back to potential instantly, that it would take some time to get the economy um, back together. So I think we were in a world where people wanted to spend you know, five plus percent more than normal, the economy could not make 5% more than normal. And so that increased spending went more into prices um, than into output. I think the sort of last dollars, the marginal dollar of that legislation did very little for output and a lot for prices. Um, now it continues to go to today. I mean, look at where consumption is right now. Consumer spending is about two and a half percent above what the CBO forecast it would be in their last forecast before the pandemic. Real disposable income is about a point below what it was expected to be. So people are still spending way above what you'd think um, given their income, their incomes. And so this is casting a long shadow. Um, in some ways that's good. It means that the Russian invasion and the oil price increase didn't drive us uh, and the monetary policy hikes didn't drive us into a recession um, in 2022. But in, in other respects, it's I think why um, inflation has been so stubborn. One argument for kind of overdoing it, and and I would agree. You know, if you kind of do the arithmetic, go back to March of 2021, that two trillion felt like it was overdoing it. And and actually, we did a lot of analysis around the part of the package that provided money to state and local governments, and it didn't feel like. It ended up being five hundred billion. I think of the two trillion went to state and local governments, either through public education or you know just you know, grants, basically to state and local governments that they're still uh, using. That you know it felt large relative to our estimate of what impact it was going to have on state and local government budgets, and to a significant degree. Yeah, and I should say by the way, in twenty twenty, mid twenty twenty, you had the lowest estimate 
of the needs of state and local government of pretty much anyone out there. Yeah, that's um, right. And yours yeah. were much more accurate um, and ahead of the curve, certainly relative to mine. Um, now, by March 2021, I had converted to you. I understood their needs were nowhere near that, but it took me about six months more than it took you to figure well, it you, out. Well, you're kind of giving me credit, and I'm not sure I deserve it. I mean, but I'll take it anyway. <laughs> so it's actually, it's actually about the team, Dan White and Bernard Yaros, those folks that, you know, they, they do that careful analysis, but thank you. But the art, the, the reason I bring that up is because the argument was, look, in March of 2021, there was still a lot of uncertainty around the pandemic. You know, yeah, we had the vaccines, they were starting to get rolled out, but we had no idea, you know, exactly how this was going to play out. There's a lot of nervousness around this and kind of policy 101 and maybe I shouldn't say that because you write the, the book policy. One, you write the books on policy, but I, this is kind of the way I frame it. Policy 101 is if there's a lot of uncertainty, you want to, you want to overdo it you, because you don't know, uh, you know, how things are going to play out, particularly in a political context, because, you know, you've got political constraints on what you can actually accomplish and the concern might be that you only have one, you have a, as they say, a bite, one bite at the apple, and you're not sure if you could get a second or third bite at the apple if you actually needed it. So, given that, does that make it more more sensible that you know, they went for a big pack? The Biden administration went for a big package on the American Rescue Plan. Look, first of all, I think the error of too large is better than the error of too small. So, I'd rather have made their mistake than the mistake that policymakers made in 2009 mm, and 10. Which- yeah. I think was mostly Congress's fault, not the president's fault, but regardless of whose fault it was, um, that's where we ended up. So, so I agree with that. I think you want to err on the side of too much, but you know, that is not an operationalizable principle. You know, I think we both would agree that 200 trillion would have been too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just because you want some insurance doesn't isn't licensed for an unlimited amount. Um, you said the state and local uh, wasn't well founded. You know, the two thousand dollar checks. That wasn't the nerds on the Biden economic team that came up with that idea. That was Donald Trump made that number up on point. the fly in December. And then for political reasons, Nancy Pelosi and then uh, uh, President-elect Biden uh, converged to it. So the whole thing didn't really come together in an overly economically informed way. And, you know, you could look at the output gap at the time. Um, and I, it was clearly shrinking. It wasn't much more than, you know, I think 3% of GDP and shrinking, and this was about 10% of GDP. So I think it was overkill based on what was understood at the time. As I said, you know, political system never gets things perfect. I'd rather have overkill than underkill, but I think we can strive to, you know, Goldilocks next time around. Got it. Hey, Chris, you've heard this this <laughs> conversation. Yeah. You want to weigh right? in? And- Who's right? Well, I'm that's I was very nervous about that. I'm very nervous about asking him this. Uh, who is right, by the way? <laughs> and, and you do, you know, uh, uh, I am your boss. I'm just, yeah, yeah. Saying. And it's, uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, it is compensation season too. So, yeah. oh, yeah, that, that's true. That's a good that point. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, Chris always disagrees with me, constantly disagrees with me, which is, is great because it makes for, I will agree that I, at a minimum, I think it, things could have been structured differently, right? The $2,000 number, right? Where did that come from? We could certainly have, um, well, in theory, they could have been structured differently. I think an error or a problem that we still face is, well, you talked about infrastructure, but I think our government infrastructure is is still lacking in terms of being able to target these funds more effectively, Mm -hmm. right? 
we could have we could have enhanced UI um, benefits for unemployment insurance benefits, for example. But our systems really don't let us uh, do that in a very efficient uh, manner. So we could have. I agree that the amount was too much uh, for the American Rescue Plan, but even a lower amount could have been targeted much more effectively to, you know, if the idea is we want to support people, there's lots of uncertainty with the pandemic, uh, we could have uh, certainly structured things to make sure that the money went uh, to best uh, use cases or, or where it was needed the most. So I, that I see as a, a continuing issue that we haven't addressed at all. Right. Yeah, and you're totally right about that. And it, yeah. it's just depressing. I mean, with unemployment insurance in, in 2020, they wanted to do something where everyone got, say, 95% of what they used to make. Right. And to do that, you need to program a computer to multiply. What's your salary? Multiply it by 0.95, send you a check. The computer couldn't multiply. Yeah, right. Yeah. The computer could add. So they could right, say, yeah. what's your unemployment benefit? Let's <laughs> add $600 to it. And for some people that ended up being twice their old salary. And for some people it was less than 95%. And, you know, no one wanted to do that, but you had no choice um, as to how to structure it. And, and it's not, you know, next recession we go into, it's not going to be any different. We're just going to be saying the exact same thing. Doesn't yeah. lend a whole lot of confidence around their idea of prioritization, prioritizing exactly. that yeah. oh, yeah. payments, does it? Right. Oh, right. And that's because they're using, yeah. I think they're using Cobalt. Anyway. They're using some decades old yeah. computer it's system. Like, There's only a few people left in the country that know how to do. Same thing with, with prioritization. That operates off yeah. a computer system. that There's just not a lot of people uh, know how to do it. Now, maybe ChatGPT could, you know, figure it out, <laughs> right. Um, right. ask it how to prioritize and send out the checks. But, you know, other than ChatGPT, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I want to move forward. Uh, I want to do three things in the time remaining. One, I want to talk about inflation uh, now, today. And then uh, second, maybe we do the statistics game. And then third, come back and talk about recession and recession, because that's just top of mind. You know, we, we, yep. everybody's talking about recession. So on the on the inflation front, let me ask it this way. How are you feeling about inflation? How are you feeling about it? I am feeling better than I was a few months ago. I always thought that the inflation rate was going to come down. In fact, at every point in the last two years, I've expected lower inflation. I just haven't expected it to fall as much as other people um, were expecting it to fall. So it's not shocking that goods inflation is moderating um, so much. Um, it's not shocking that housing inflation is likely to moderate pretty soon and what we're seeing in the spot rates. I think some of the services um, outside housing are probably... Um, falling a bit more than I expected them to. And, and I think that is, broadly speaking, a good sign. But um, that being said, you look at wage growth, it's still about two points above what it was prior to the pandemic. I just don't think we're going to be able to get all the way down to 2% inflation, maybe not even below 3% um, inflation, given where we are in the economy right now. So, you know, progress, but, you know, still more to do or a difficult choice about um, whether to accept a, a higher inflation rate going forward. So so the, the kind of the thing that's most uh, still concerning is around wage growth and what that means for uh, prices for various types of services and industries that are very labor intensive. The other, the other stuff feels like that's coming in reasonably well on the good side and on, on and I think rent 
the recent weakness in rent suggests that ha- the cost of housing services is going to start to come in here pretty quickly as well. But it, so that's where your concern is most significant. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think broadly you can speak about inflation. You can think about inflation bottom up. Let's yep. go through five sectors of the economy. Yep. And when you go through that, you feel pretty good about it, um, especially because a really positive shoe in terms of rent has not dropped yet um, in terms of the CPI. Now, I don't think goods prices are going to continue to fall at the pace they've fallen either. So some of the good news is transitory, but there's more good news to come. Um, but then you do a macro bottom uh, top down perspective. And there you look at openings that are higher than they've been at any point prior to the pandemic that in the last couple of months have stayed very high. You look at workers quitting higher than any time prior to the pandemic. Again, um, that aspect of the labor market hasn't eased. You look at wage growth, and there were some numbers showing some slowing at the end of the year. We'll see what the employment cost index shows at the end of the month. But even with some slowing, you know, I just don't think over a three-year period of time, you can have wages grow at 4.5% a year and have inflation at 2% a year. Um, or at least I don't think it's likely. And so that macro perspective is what you know keeps me... Um, nervous and thinking we're still pretty far from victory. Let me um, let me try something else. Let's try something out on you um, in terms of wage growth, uh, because I, I I agree that feels like the the, the real issue here ultimately to, to get go to the last mile and get inflation back down to the Fed's target. We 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 probably can get CPI inflation you know three three and a half percent with everything else, but unless wage growth moderates. We're not getting down to two, two and a half percent, which would be consistent with the Fed's target on CPI. So it's really about that's kind of where the concern and the focus is. Could it be the case that wage growth uh, jumped, accelerated uh, in, uh, in in significant part because of a jump in inflation expectations, uh, which occurred if you look at the data around the time the Russians invaded Ukraine and oil prices and gasoline prices jumped the gasoline, particularly it's kind of central to people's thinking about inflation. That's how they form their expectations. And really that's what matters most in in terms of their thinking about their own finances. And so when gasoline prices took off, in fact, they got as high as $5 a gallon, a record high by June of uh, 2022, that, that, that inflation expectations jumped in, 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 and workers said to their employers, hey, look, you got to pay me more to compensate. And employers said, fine, you know, they understood. But now with gas prices back, you know, oil prices have moderated, gas prices have come back in, we're at three buck 25, three buck 50, you know, something around that. Inflation expectations feel like they're coming back in. They're already back in for bond investors, but for consumers, right. if you look at New York Fed or University of Michigan, whatever, they're coming back in. And it does feel like consistent with that wage growth, at least on average hourly earnings, we'll see on the employment cost index, as you say, that start that's coming in. So it's not really about the slack in the labor market. You know, maybe we're you know a little bit beyond full employment, but not a whole lot. It's really about these inflation expectations, and that as they come in, wage growth will moderate, even without a very significant weakening in the labor market and an increase in unemployment. How, does that resonate at all with you? I think that may be a piece of it, um, but. You know, I think that also falls under the heading of things that I call possibilism, not probabilism. Everything you get is possibly true, um, but you don't want to only think of sort of the happy stories that are possible. You want to think about what's most probable. Um, you know, on labor market tightness, 3.5% unemployment, you know, that's what it was before the pandemic. Yeah. Now, 
We don't know what was going to happen absent a pandemic in 2020 and 2021. Nominal wage growth was picking up. There's a little bit of inflationary pressure. Might we have discovered that 3.5% unemployment was, um, you know, inflationary? We might have. But, you know, I'm not that worried about the unemployment rate. What I am worried about is the ratio of job openings to unemployed and the quits. That, to me, are better predictors of inflation than unemployment. And they're really off the charts high compared to anything we saw before the pandemic. So I think there is a lot of evidence of tightness. Um, Wages were growing quickly um, in 2021, also before the Russian invasion. Now, maybe that was a transitory pandemic thing, and maybe 2022 is a transitory Russian invasion thing. But at some point, you sort of want Occam's razor. And if you have four different stories in a row, uh, maybe there's one simple story for all of it, which is a tight uh, labor market. Um, Then in terms of expectations, you do raise a really important and unsettled question. I mean, expectations are like the ether of inflation forecasting. This thing you can't really, I mean, we have all these measures, but we don't know which of them matters. Is it short run? Is it long run? Is it consumers? Is it businesses? Is it markets? Is it your forecast, Mark? Uh, You know, which one are the expectations that matter? And um, short run expectations are much higher than long run expectations. I think they probably matter more. You know, when people say expectations are anchored, well, what do you think is going to happen over the next year? What's going to actually affect wages um, and prices? And the short run have come down as as gasoline prices have come down, but they're still, I think they're still uh, two points, point and a half above where they were prior to the pandemic. I mean, if you Yep. If you have the numbers at your fingertips four, and want to correct percent. One year in, ahead on New York Fed is four. I and that was like person. two and a half before the pandemic? Yeah, something like so, that. Yeah. yeah, anyway, so it's still pretty high. It's coming and in pretty so fast. I think it's it was still... like at six or something. It's coming in pretty fast. But yeah. nonetheless, you're right. It's not in all the way. Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, maybe this is, you know, this will help us by half a point. It'll help us get towards three, but I don't see how it helps us get to two, two and a half. Got it. Well, hopefully I didn't take someone's statistic when I said the 4% near-term inflation expectation. So let's go to the game, the statistics game. Uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun. Good I've been, way- I've been <laughs> up all night studying. <laughs> Just to, so uh, everyone's le- level sets, the game is we all put forward a statistic. Uh, the rest of the gang tries to figure it out uh, through questions and clues, uh, reasoning. If uh, the best question is one that's not so easy, we get it immediately uh, and not so hard, we never get it. And bonus, if it's relevant to the topic at hand and, of course, we've got a lot of topics on the table here, so uh, uh, I, th- I think we're good. Uh, so with that, Chris, I'm going to turn to you for, first and, and see what your statistic is. All right. You've uh, complained over the last couple of weeks my statistics were too easy. So I'm going to- Really? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm always complaining. Uh, minus 179,000. Negative 179,000. Minus one, 179. Is, is it a statistic? <laughs> Animal, vegetable, or mineral? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, Statistic that came out this week? It did. Is it housing related? It is housing related. Oh, housing, I don't have a chance against Mark. Well, uh, it's not existing home sales that came out this morning, is it? No, that would be. Because I didn't didn't have a chance to look at that. Okay, is that the decline in uh, single family... Housing starts or permits? Oh, uh, both. Both. <laughs> I, mean, oh, wow. I mean, it's related to both single family housing starts and permits. 
Oh, oh, but it's not a de- the monthly. De- it is the, the uh, monthly it's the, decline. I'm gonna. It's a. I'll give it to you. I'll give okay. you the cowbell. It's the difference between them. The d- difference between who starts and permits, or permit. I'm sorry. It's the difference between permits and start. Uh, I'm not wow, following. that's hardcore. That, yeah, yeah. So permits are below starts. Oh, you. Oh, is, okay. That is really hardcore. Oh yeah, my gosh, yeah, you're saying that the, the actual permits minus the <laughs> yes. actual starts. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because if right. I threw out, you know, seven or thirty thousand, you get it right away. So I gotta, that's a good point. Gotta good gotta point. mix it. I, up I like that though. Very yeah, good. It's different. Uh, it's a, it's it's negative. That's it. It happens time to time, but it, yeah. it does suggest that there is uh, weakness. Uh, going forward yeah. right we are right permits oh are that's a gr- I, I, uh, you're right that's a great statistic actually because usually permits are above starts and signaling right. we're going to get start more starts and you're saying now permits are below, below starts. starts right oh, so i see the builders are using their per- the permits they already had to put up some additional start even starts on an absolute basis are low but that's still feeding the pipeline but looking ahead with permits falling faster it would suggest even more weakness Right. So. Right. Right. Have you noticed, um, and this may, uh, Jason, go to some of your concern about the labor market. There's been no decline in construction employment whatsoever. It's, yeah. You know, it's like if you would, if we're going to see any kind of weakening in the labor market, you would think it would be the inter- most interest rate sensitive sector of the economy. The, that, that does make me a little. Well, the output is collapsing there, but. Well, it, on the single have, family side, on the residential side, yeah. On the multifamily side, is booming, right? right. So, in oh, oh, but I'm just looking at residential contribution to GDP. In oh, Q3. oh, I yeah, think it was like yeah. minus one point yeah. five. Oh, I think that's, that's right. Where it's tracking for Q4. That's as big a decline as we've seen since the financial crisis. Yeah, but even on the single family, right, completions are still still elevated, holding up because we have yeah. so much in the pipeline. Right? Yeah. That does, does make me a little nervous. Okay, that's very good. Jason, okay. do you want to go next or you want me to sure, go next? Sure, why not? Um, 1.5%. And if it helps you, uh, decimal places help you, it's 1.4949%. Oh, really? That's kind Rounds of Rounds cool. to 1.5%. It, it, indeed, it does. 1.5%. 1, 1. And it's positive, right? It's positive. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm a positive person. Yeah. Okay. I'm not yeah. negative like you. Yeah. And is it a statistic that is recent, <laughs> came out recently, or is it is it is it not that kind of a statistic? It's like uh You'd have to calculate it. You have to calculate but it. it. Okay. But you'd have okay. to use and, recent data among okay. other things. This week or is it is it related to inflation? I Wages. think it's related to everything. Oh oh it's like Oh, I see. It's like the meaning of life or something. The one point five. It is. It is, yeah. it is close to the. It is about as close to the meaning of life as you get with economic data. Yeah. I think oh my right. gosh. Wow. Oh. Oh, this is really intriguing. Uh, you want any idea? Oh, it's a. Uh, I mean, one and a half percent. I'm just going to throw just to continue the conversation. That that's my sense of underlying productivity growth. Is that? That is uh, productivity growth over the pandemic period has been oh, 1.4949% annual rate. Oh, uh, yes. Wow. You are That's the, the meaning of life. Impressive. That is the meaning of life. It is. Uh, I'm just, I'm going to stop and pause for a moment. I want everyone to soak that in. Did you see how I did that, Chris? <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Hey, did you know though, Jason, that if you take productivity growth in the three years leading up to the pandemic, it was 1.5%. So, oh yeah! Oh, we yeah. are right on track. It is amazing. Yeah. It's amazing, right? Yeah. 
Well, of course, we need. It'd be nice to get more than one point five percent, but is there any chance of that? I mean, what do you think? I of, don't know. I'm. Yeah. I mean, well, is there any chance of that? The qu- answer to any question yes. is there any chance is yes. <laughs> right. uh, how much of a chance is there? Okay, uh, a reasonably good chance. chance. There is that? I wouldn't build my plans around that. Um, I'd build my yeah. plans around 1.5. Yeah. I still think with sort of a certain amount of COVID swirling around, a certain amount of hardening yeah. against it, I'm sort of pessimistic on work from home, but are you entirely a bias. Uh, there's a lot, you know, a lot of evidence that goes a lot of different ways on that. So, yeah, I think I'd be happy if we had 1.5, it's more likely to be below than above, but who knows? Yeah. Um, I'm uh, counting on chat GPT. I'm just saying, yep. You know, we, we, we actually contracted with, we meaning the economics unit at Moody's with open AI before chat GPT. So we are experimenting with, uh, AI, uh, a lot of different ways so very interesting so for all of my experience with chat gpt have been to like i know random things in sonnet form which have not been productivity enhancing <laughs> right right well i'm sure for you it just, it's creating work right because you're students i mean oh, yeah oh i just got the interim report of the committee here for how to change the way we do assignments based on exactly. chat gpt right so, wow that's going to change education significantly yeah all right i got one for you um, back. and, uh, you ready? Yeah. 926,000, 926,000. Multifamily starts. Is that... No, starts. Oh, uh, no, no, that's 500,000. Oh, no, housing, labor. It or... is housing. It is housing related. Oh, no, Cause we got a lot of oh, housing no, statistics. It, it's your favorite under construction. It, it's under construction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a little, that was easy for course. This is a really important statistic, Jason. So, there are 926,000 multifamily units under construction going to completion. That is a record high by orders of magnitude, orders of magnitude. And it, it keeps going up. And, you know, it, it goes to uh, just the boom in multifamily related to the very high rents and high prices for multifamily property. And I bring this up because this is critical to inflation, right? Because we're going to get a boatload of supply here. Uh, it's already happening. Demand is actually a bit depressed for rental units because of the very high rents because of the surge in rents this time last year coming out of the pandemic uh, lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see vacancies. There are vacancy rates already starting to move higher in multifamily and rents are going to remain very weak here, which is really important uh, with regard to inflate, particularly CPI inflation where consumer prices are, you know, uh, big, uh, the third of that of that uh, of that measure is uh, related to housing costs. So I, I view that as a very important uh, statistic with regard to inflation going forward. Um, okay, uh, that was great. That was very good. Good because I I feel pretty proud of myself. <laughs> to get, you should. You get, should. Get yeah. the meaning of good life. Job. Good job. Get the meaning of life. And, it, and then you're right. That is so. That is the as close as it gets to the meaning of life uh, in economics. Okay, let's uh, let's end the conversation uh, with a discussion around uh, recession. And um, I know, Jason, you, you've kind of been because we, we uh, you and I have been um, participating in this poll that Goldman Sachs has been uh, putting together. And I get to see what you think about. I think it is your cousin putting together. But It's my cousin. Yeah, exactly. My cousin putting it together. She runs investment, the investment management group at uh, the, or the uh, private uh, uh, private wealth management group at uh, Goldman Sachs. 
And uh, are you, last I looked or last I saw, I think you're around 50-50 for a recession in in the next year. Is that uh, about right? Uh, I'm I'm at sort of 40, 45. I, th- I think I oh, might have okay. lowered it okay. since I put that down okay. with them. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's really going to be a battle of, you know, everything the Fed can affect in the economy with, with housing being chief among it versus consumers. And consumers, I think, still have a lot of potential in them, certainly in the first half of the year. I'm getting more nervous about whether consumers can maintain their spending in the second um, half of the year. So it's far from inevitable. But, um, you know, there are just a lot of things swirling around in our economy, plus the tail risk of the debt limit, some escalation in Europe, etc. So, um, you know, if you wanted to talk me a bit lower than that, I, I don't know that I'd fight you that hard. Um, but it's definitely higher than the normal baseline 15% that you'd have in a normal year. Oh, so, so yeah, I, you know, uh, uh, on average, we have a recession every, what, seven years or so, yeah. something like that. So 15% is kind of the number baseline. And you're saying we're at, your, your sense is 40, 45. 40, 45. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what I think. But and, uh, I think it's elevated, but I think it is way far from like inevitable. Right. Right. So you're you're actually well outside the consensus. Uh, the consensus would put it closer to two third probability. Yeah, I think that's way too pessimistic. I, I think yeah. they're underestimating. I think a decent amount of the monetary impact has actually already been felt. The tightening in financial conditions really happened in the first half of 2022. I think there's lags, but I don't think they're quite as huge as some think. I think consumer balance sheets going into this and are in much better shape than they are at similar cycles elsewhere. We'll get some relief um, from the rest of the world, China reopening um, and the like. So all this inevitable recession talk, at least inevitable this year, uh, seems to me overly pessimistic. And I thought it was overly pessimistic when people were saying that last year. And, you know, we ended the year, it looks like we ended the year on pretty strong growth. We'll find out. And I think if we extend the horizon here another year, say 2024, your probabilities at that point, they do go above 50 well, they definitely go above 50%. First of all, you have more time. Yeah. So it would be 30% would yeah. be your baseline right. for two years. But uh, you know, my belief that there's a decent amount of inertia and inflation is that the Fed may you know, slow down its hikes. They may pause. But if we don't have a recession this year, then I think almost certainly we're going to have inflation that's above uh, 3% and more likely rising than falling. And so there'll be maybe another round of rate increases or whatever else. So I think, I don't, I think we're going to have a hard time escaping uh, two years without one. Uh, okay. So just to uh, summarize, uh, to, to make sure I have it clear, you're saying, uh, look, we got enough juice here, momentum consumers to keep the economy moving forward in 2023, but the, the economy's not going to slow sufficiently enough to uh, get unemployment and labor market conditions to a place where inflation actually comes back into the Fed's target all the way. And the Fed says, oh my gosh, I got to raise rates more. So the Terminal rate isn't what markets think. It's not five percent, and actually, markets have rates coming back down right. later this year. It could be five and a half or six, and ultimately, that pushes. If you told me there's no recession this year, yeah, then I would expect the rate would get to six percent. Six percent, okay. Yeah. Um, now, the market expectation, of course, averages across the probability of a lot of different events, right. including a recession. But no recession, I think rates go to six, and I think we have a recession the year after. Oh, interesting. And you're, can I just ask, just to make it concrete, do you, that probability for 2024 would be 60, 65%, something like the that? The cumulative over two years. Q, yeah. Q, yeah. Yeah. Got it. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, Chris, um, uh, Chris is the bearer of the, of the group, but although he's gotten a little less bearish recently, he's, what were you? 68% probability. You're, uh, two you're, thirds. He, two, oh, you're two thirds probability in 2023. What are you, what yeah, are you today? We, we extended it to early 24. All right. Early 2024. Okay. <laughs> so where are you now? I'm, I'm sticking with two thirds, two thirds. And what do you think of, of Jason's scenario? Uh, uh, where rates have to go higher and the recession actually is not 23, it's in 24. Yeah, I, I, I am increasingly pushing out my uh, you are. timing. Yeah, yeah. I, I do agree with that. So there is certainly a lot of inertia still, so very hard to get a recession in the next quarter or two, right? Things would really, yeah. we'd have to be hit with some other shock. But yeah. as we get into Q3, Q4 and into Q1 of next year, then I think we have a lot of vulnerability there. Yeah. Hey, can I ask something else that's bothering me uh, on this related to this issue? Going back to the labor market, is it possible that yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I know. How do I say this so that probably I don't have that problem? Is this is this highly probable or reasonably mm -hmm. probable that we have no significant increase in overall layoffs, but the labor market? weaken sufficiently to get wage growth down just simply because businesses say I'm not hiring anymore. Like people leave, they quit. I, I just not going to fill, you know, I'm just not yes. going to, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to fill those open positions or, yeah. and I'm not going to create. I think the positions. best case for that is that job openings just rose so much more than we can quite understand or explain. And so what goes up maybe comes down. And there was a certain amount of what looks like nonlinearity in the inflation and labor market process, where just small changes led to really large changes. You know, small changes in labor market led to a large change in inflation. So maybe that can happen in reverse. So I definitely think, you know, that is the most plausible, more plausible probably, Mark, than your expectation story. I think the most plausible story is that the labor market weakens in the form of openings falling quite a lot while unemployment rises only a little bit. And I, we haven't really seen that happen before, but we've also never seen things move this rapidly, you know, towards higher openings in the past either. So, Because I'll have to say, I've been just so surprised by the low layoffs. I mean, you saw UI claims this week, there were 190,000 people claimed. I mean, that's, you know, a four-week moving average, we're at 200K. That's about as low as it gets. I mean- Typical would be 250. Recession would be 300. Oh, it's on labor market is just, it's stunning. Stunning. It's just stunning. And all these tech workers losing their jobs. It feels like they're getting jobs right they're all away. Finding the, they're all finding yeah. jobs again. I mean, I know they're all, I don't want to say that, but it seems like a lot of them tech workers layoff yeah. are, are finding jobs. In fact, it's a great thing for the rest of the, of the, of business, right? I mean, because yeah. people couldn't find tech workers, you know, yeah. I mean, every company needs tech workers, right? So here, yeah. here we are. So pretty amazing. Okay, why well, just to round out the conversation, I, I'm still at 50 50 for 2023. Although I would say 2024 does feel like it might be higher than 50 50 to me be, for the reasons you articulate. I mean, because, yep. uh, and, and can I ask, because uh, I, I think we're going to title this, uh, this, this conversation. What was that phrase you used about? Um, possibilism and probabilism. Yes, possibilism. Write that down. Everyone, write that down. Possibilism versus probabilism, because that, okay. that definitely is going to be the title of this uh, this, this particular podcast. Okay. I, that's the title of your next uh, paper. 
Uh, come on. You better trademark that because he, he takes <laughs> people's. I know. I've been, he'll, I've been he'll, planning he'll to write it up. Maybe, I've been planning to write it up for the Wall Street Journal. Maybe maybe you've gotten me to. Yeah, there you so, go. This so might be the, run, working run through that. those thoughts. Yeah. Hey, Jason, this is a great conversation. Thanks so much for for uh, participating. Uh, really oh, that's a lot it. of fun. Thank you so much. And I, and I hope I'm right. That's all I'm saying. So I hope you're <laughs> right. right everything too. all the time. <laughs> anyway, uh, appreciate that. And uh, dear listener, thank you for uh, tuning in. And um, I, I should say just a reminder, uh, if you have questions that you'd like us to address, because I think next week we don't have a guest and we'll, we'll take some listener questions so if you have questions you'd like us to address, uh, fire away. You know how to get to us. Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, or our websites, Help Economy uh, at Moody's.com. Anything you want to do, just uh, fire away and we'll, we'll answer those questions. So with that, uh, we'll call it a podcast. Take care, everyone.